But economic freedom is at its core about having access to capital, about the right to own your own property, the right to start a bank account in your name. Uh, and, you know, there are still a lot of legal restrictions around the world um, that restrict women from, from doing those things. Welcome to the IA YouTube channel. My name is Reem Ibrahim and I'm the Communications Officer and Linda Wetson Scholar here at the Institute of Economic Affairs. For far too many women across the world, being born a girl consigns them to lifelong oppression. Throughout history, women have had to live their lives being treated unfairly by laws which restrict their economic, educational and social freedoms. Governments have a long history of controlling women, one that has not ended. In 2023, in some parts of the world, we are seeing women's rights regress. The Chinese government's population policies have treated women as wombs, meaning that they were subjected to forced abortions or forced pregnancies, depending on what the government deems necessary for the country. Iran's morality police brutally, and often fatally, enforce compulsory modesty laws on women. In Afghanistan, the Taliban have denied women and girls the right to an education, to work and other basic freedoms. Our right to live our lives without the interference of the state is continuously being denied at a scale which is incomparable to the oppression faced by our male counterparts. It is vital that we continue to hear from women and girls and understand the challenges that they face at the hands of oppressive governments. On this week's episode of Breaking Barriers, I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by Sarah Little. Sarah is a journalist and the founder of More To Her Story, a global platform initiative amplifying the voices, stories and ideas of young women and girls. She regularly contributes to international media outlets and think tanks, writing about women and girls. She hosts the More To Her Story podcast, a monthly podcast featuring global leaders, experts and young people advancing gender equity. Amazing. Thank you so much for joining me, Sarah. I just first of all want to ask a little bit about how did you actually come to the realization that More to Her Story had to be founded? And uh, tell me a little bit about that journey. Yeah, so More to Her Story, I started after essentially two years I took off of university to travel and um, interview young refugee women and girls. Uh, it was one of the heights of the Syrian war. So it was uh, 2016, 2017, and I had grown up in the Middle East. I had, I felt, you know, a connection to Syria. I'd been there in 2011, actually, when the Arab Spring started. And I wanted to hear the stories firsthand of young Syrian women. Um, and so I flew to Jordan, which is home to the largest refugee camp in the Middle East, Sachary Refugee Camp. Uh, and I basically spent, you know, several months commuting to and from the camp uh, meeting with young women and hearing their stories and helping to amplify their stories to a, a bigger world. And that um, journey kind of put me, like that evolved into me going to um, parts of Africa, parts of Europe, parts of the United States, interviewing young refugee women over the course of two years um, from or 10 different countries. And I heard something I heard so much during that time was I have nowhere to express myself. And just the challenges that I face as a girl in my community um, 
because it's taboo, because it's, you know, whatever. Um, and so I wanted to create a space, a digital space and platform for girls to be able to creatively express themselves and also just discuss the challenges that they're facing because they're women in their communities. Um, and so that's how Mortar Story was kind of born and founded and it's evolved. Now we have a network of more than 4,000 young women and girls wow. uh, who are actively engaging and sharing their stories and major news outlets like ABC and NBC, they come to us to help them tell the stories of young women, um, particularly those who are living in conflict areas around the world. Uh, and also I host a podcast also called More to Her Story, interviewing like global leaders and young people advancing gender equality. That is absolutely fantastic. That is amazing. And how did you kind of get that sort of to contribute to the liberty movement as a whole? Because there is obviously um, a kind of more leftist definition of what um, liberating women could look like. What, why did you kind of kind of come to that through a liberty perspective? Um, well, when you say liberty, you just mean freedom, yeah. right? Yeah. So, um, I mean, I think that like women's freedom is is essential. It's the bedrock of any thriving society. Um, and today we're seeing a steady global regression of women's rights. I mean, you see that in Afghanistan where the Taliban are actively denying girls the right to go to school. Um, you see that in Iran where women are just fighting for the right to uh, wear what they want, to not be viewed as legally half of a man, <laughs> uh, pretty basic things. Um, and, and you're seeing that right here in the United States where you know, the the constitutional right for women to have complete control of our bodies has been overturned. Um, and, you know, in the in the developed country with the highest maternal mortality rate in the world, you know, our right to to um, have control of our bodies is being revoked. So we're seeing this regression uh, and rollback of, of our rights today um, in ways that that we haven't really seen in decades. Um, so it's a very it's a very timely moments i think to hear and amplify the stories of women and girls um yeah that's incredible i think it's incredible that you're able to share those stories and share that on digital platform where you're obviously you're able to reach so many more people um just now turning to education i wanted to talk a little bit about so I mean, Mary Wollstonecraft herself, she is a, probably one of the most uh, famous uh, female philosophers, and she emphasised the role that education has. She said that, um, uh, she argued that to strengthen the female mind by enlarging it, and there will be an end to blind obedience. That was in the vindication uh, of the rights of women. I want to know a little bit about why you think that governments that are authoritarian, uh, especially those that were in the Middle East at the moment, the, the few examples that you gave, why do they tend to take away education as a method of oppression? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, education is one of the first ways to level the playing field in any society. Um, so I don't think there's necessarily one motivation to limit women and girls access to education. There are many factors at play, uh, depending on the, the country that you're in. And historically speaking, there's always been a segregation of the sexes in some way, whether that's educational segregation, occupational segregation, social segregation. It wasn't until the 1840s and 50s that women in the United States had the opportunity to go to university and get a degree. Um, so there's always been this segregation. But I think for what you just asked in terms of what is the motive of authoritarian regimes like the ones that we're seeing in the Middle East today, I think one big reason is fear. Uh, if I allow my daughter to go to school and get educated, she'll probably grow up and want to get a job and leave the house. And 
ultimately education is about knowledge, skills, and exposure. So limiting a girl's education ultimately means limiting her access and exposure to the outside world. And the more knowledge that a person has about the world, the more they want to branch out. It's a really good quote that you that you said. Uh, I love her as well. Um, there's also another quote that comes to mind by Ralph Waldo Emerson. Uh, the mind once stretched by a new idea never returns to its original dimensions. And I think that can be said for like education. That's an <laughs> incredible why. quote. I love that. I've not heard that before. I definitely think that, that it kind of encapsulates the, this idea that actually as you become more educated, and as you pursue knowledge, your you your your mind transforms, but also your capabilities transform. And um, I guess that's why these authoritarian regimes that we see, when they're trying to oppress women and they want to control women or any individual, education is kind of that method, that tool that they use to take away in order to then could be able to control those individuals anyway. And that that obviously we see that happen across across the world with women, and historically that's happened with women as well. Um, so that's really interesting. Thank. Thank you. I was particularly moved by um, one of the video diaries that you've so kindly sent to me. Uh, it highlights the impact that taking away education really has on women themselves in the modern day. And um, that, that particular video diary is from a young woman who describes how education and that being taken away from her actually affects her. Let's take a look. You can live in a country without men, but there is no life without women. I will never give up. Standing here for my rights. I can't live without women in this No one can stop us. I am who I am, I'm strong, I'm good. In a country where it's a crime to be a woman and a crime to let women study, why do you think that they've sort of um, been able to even make that argument to society in the first place? How can they sort of allow women to uh, take away that, how, how to sort of be able to take away that education and that be okay? Why haven't people sort of um, been, you know, protested this kind of policy? Yeah, well, it's a, it's a good question. Um, and just kind of to take it to an even more global perspective, today, 130 million girls around the world are denied the right to go to school. Um, so Afghanistan is obviously the most extreme example. Um, but it's been proven over and over again that educating girls increases a country's productivity. It fuels economic growth. Um, some countries lose more than a billion dollars a year by simply failing to educate their girls to the same level as their boys. Um, a child born to an educated mother is 50% more likely to survive past the age of five. Uh, girls who are uh, who are educated are far less likely to be married as children, and they're likelier to lead healthier lives in adulthood, which ultimately benefits everybody in society. So you take a group like the Taliban, who really only care about the men in their society, um, if you want to make that argument to them, you know, like this is about benefiting everybody in your society. Um, so if you only care about the men and boys, then, you know, great, this benefits them. Educating a girl benefits the men in your society. Um, That's incredible. I actually didn't know that um, educating women themselves um, actually does increase economic productivity overall for those for um, their male counterparts as well. That's really interesting. Why do you think so? Sorry, how do you think that kind of impacts? women in the long term then it's sort of they they're having that edu their education taken away from them they are unable to to learn to pursue knowledge how does that impact them in the long term well yeah i mean kind of like as i was saying like it's just it's it's about leading healthier more prosperous lives in the long term and as a girl you know if she's educated she has the 
understanding of her own rights. I think that's a big thing that's often left out of these conversations is like when a girl is educated from a young age, um, she has an understanding of her body, of her just basic human rights. Uh, and we can get more into that later, but that's a big thing. And I think, um, again, like girls who are educated are far less likely to get married. They're far less likely to give birth uh, and to become mothers at an early age. Um, these things all have an impact on society as a whole, on communities and families as a whole. So it's you, not, you can't look at it in a vacuum, you know, which I think that people tend to do, but it really, yeah. Yeah, so do you think that then um, a lot of those authoritarian regimes that do take away education are fearful that women will, for example, not want to have as many children or as have children mm. early or want to get married early? Do you think that is a key aspect to why they use education as a, as a method of oppression? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think that, you know, it's not a coincidence that women's rights are regressing at the same time that authoritarianism is on the rise uh, around the world. And I think that many autocrats, um, tyrannical leaders, whatever you want to call them, who are by and large men, uh, fear the downfall of the patriarchy. Um, and that is definitely just a natural byproduct of the patriarchy that girls get married younger they have more kids they're they're restrained to the, the home instead of going out into the world and like experiencing new things and being exposed and having knowledge and um, gaining skills you know the basic things that every every human deserves but so yeah definitely that's that's incredibly interesting i think it's why uh, why they do those things and why they take away that kind of influence do you think there's any hope that these kind of freedoms potentially would be given back to women that especially sort of in the Middle East where um, we see this quite quite often where women are unable to go to uh, go to university or being pulled out of school in the first place do you think there's any kind of hope that these kind of rights would be restored we have to believe <laughs> <laughs> I love the positivity <laughs> I mean I think Nelson Mandela once said that hope is a powerful weapon and I I kind of live by that because I mean, people on, like you and I, like we do this work, we care about these issues, we're on the front lines, journalists, human rights activists, we have to have hope, we have to keep hope alive. Otherwise, there's no way that we're going to be able to continue this work effectively and be the best version of ourselves in order or in order to continue this work. And um, yeah, that's something that I'm kind of struggling with right now is in the in the midst of this, this, this state of like women's rights around the world where our rights are being taken back and you're looking at countries where entire populations are being denied their basic human rights because of the fact that they're women like that that feels hopeless you know so we kind of have to keep that in the back of our heads that there is hope um Otherwise, we won't be able to do this work. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. I think that's true, and I think then we would feel that that, that kind of work isn't isn't worth doing. I really do yeah. hope that that is the case. And actually, I, I do think that we're seeing in some areas of the world uh, more freedom, and we're seeing um, you know more women become educated. Um, we're also seeing yeah. the opposite happen in some parts of the world too. Yeah, and even to that point, like in the Gulf, um, which is notoriously always been very oppressive of women, countries in the Gulf, and like segregated by the sexes i grew up in qatar so you know <laughs> yeah um but it's you're seeing even over the past decade women kind of surpass men in 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 the gulf states in saudi and qatar in the uae uh in terms of graduating from university 
there are now more women graduating than men. So there, there has been progress. Wow. There has, there is hope. Uh, <laughs> and the Saudi government only recently allowed started allowing women to drive as well. So again, I guess those kind of policies that now we're seeing and being implemented, thankfully, mean that women obviously have more of that kind of freedom as well. Um, yeah. I just want to turn to Iran as a sort of case study of women who are being, you know, who are facing this kind of extortionate levels of oppression um, yeah. at the hands of these kind of oppressive governments. Um, in Iran, women are obviously persecuted by the morality police merely yeah. for, for things like not covering their hair uh, by wearing a hijab or by not uh, asking their husband's permission for leaving the house. These are really, really basic freedoms that are being taken away from these women. And um, they're often, you know, brutally, um, often fatally even, uh, punished for these kinds of violations of law. Why yeah. do you think this is kind of happening? I mean, can you tell me a little bit about the situation in Iran? Yeah. Well, in Iran, violence against women and girls is essentially an attitude that is encouraged by the state itself. It's a country where women are legally worth half of a man. It takes two female witnesses in a court of law to equate to a, ma a, a male testimony in a court of law. So that should tell you everything that you need to know about how women and girls are viewed and treated in Iran. Um, I was, I had the privilege a couple of weeks ago to be with this group of Iranian women and uh, lawyers and activists in Norway for the Oslo Freedom Forum. And this group, there are some Afghan women as well in the group, um, but this group of Iranian women are trying to, basically are trying to get gender apartheid to be recognized as a crime under international law. And they're gaining remarkable momentum with this, and it's an incredible movement. And basically what that would do is, you know, expand the set of moral, political, and legal tools available to mobilize international action against and ultimately end systems of gender apartheid. Uh, not only in Iran, but for other countries that are experiencing this. Um, and and it would, it would, that would, that would be a game changer if that happened. Um, and so that's what I'm, I mean, obviously, yeah, like, obviously, we can talk about all day about the human rights abuses and women's rights abuses happening in Iran. But what I think could be an incredible solution to this is getting gender apartheid recognized under international law. And if, if gender apartheid was to be recognized under international law, do you think that the Iranian government would actually um, sort of take any notice to that kind of uh, a, a change in international law? They haven't exactly, I mean, in other areas of sort of when it comes to disarmament, when it comes to um, the way that they've acted internationally, they haven't always complied with international law. So do you think that this would actually make a huge difference? I think that it more so than the Iranian regime actually taking like it seriously, I think it would it would say something to the international community. Um, and that's what would actually catalyze real change in Iran itself. Um, it wouldn't necessarily be coming from the Ayatollah, it would be coming from like um, the, the outside world. And uh, yeah, it would be expanding uh, the legal definition of apartheid, um, which we see today in Iran, Afghanistan, but also in, you know, some of the Gulf states, like in in Saudi, in Qatar, where there's male guardianship systems that still exist and where women have to get permission from their male guardian, uh, which could be a father, an uncle, a, a brother, or even a son to study uh, what they wanna study, to travel abroad, to marry who they wanna marry, to even obtain some forms of reproductive health care. I mean, this is this is apartheid. Like, 
you know, what else is there? You know, yeah. so those are basic yeah. human freedoms that are being taken away from women. I mean, that is just absurd, and it's it's honestly quite sad to hear that these things are still happening um, across the world. But actually, the fact that international the international community haven't necessarily done uh, done much to kind of affect that. Do you think that there is a kind of geopolitical um, sort of reason for for why the international community haven't really responded to the human rights abuses that occur in the Middle East? Mm, I think that, yeah, I mean, sure, there are definitely geop geopolitical reasons, but I think that ultimately what, like, the lack of action that we're seeing, especially in Afghanistan, like, yes, there's no, there's been no, like, recognition of the Taliban, you know, as, as a government by the international community, but that's not good enough. Like, there needs to be action. You know, there's a whole country denying girls and women the right to go to school they're locking women at home like it's 2023 you know uh so that like i think the inaction is really what speaks volumes uh not necessarily the steps that they have taken which have been some but it needs to be more absolutely and um just going back to iran i mean a lot of those women have been able to amplify their voices for freedom. I mean, we've seen it, I've seen it across social media. We've seen it through um, platforms like More To Her Story, where they have their kind of, they're, they're sort of able to amplify their voices. And the, the women in Iran, I think, are some of the bravest women in the world because they really have um, risked their lives to protest these kind of violations of their basic human rights. Um, I wonder if you can tell me a little bit about why, they, why you think this kind of, um, social media, the use of social media as a digital platform, but also why you think that is so effective and such an effective tool against authoritarian regimes? Yeah, I mean, social media, what it does is help unite people around a common cause, right? It's about distributing vital information, about rallying people. But beyond that, it's really about standing up against authoritarianism. Before social media, governments would shut down national TV, just to prevent people from watching the news and getting their information. But today we're seeing governments shut down social media channels like Twitter and Facebook to prevent people from banding together against the government to stop them from publicizing information to censor the press. Uh, and you saw that during the Arab Spring, you see that today in Russia and Ukraine, in Iran. Um, and I think that what that tells us as civilians, as journalists, as activists, uh, is that social media poses a direct threat to governments, um, to these authoritarian governments. Um, and they're scared of what people can do when they come together against a common cause. Um, Absolutely. And I guess a lot of that is to do with the way they're able to share location for protests, for example. A lot yeah. of, uh, I mean, in Egypt, where I'm from, for example, they um, kind of dubbed the Arab Spring in Egypt the Facebook revolution. Uh, because of the use of Facebook when it came to organizing protests in Tahrir Square, when they were trying to um, overthrow the government and overthrow the regime and actually implement a, sort of those pro-democracy protests, trying to implement a democratic regime. Actually, that regime change, I think, is owed a lot to, um, to the fact that they were able to use social media to organize those protests. Do you think that that's kind of the future of these um, anti-authoritarian uh, anti-authoritarian protests or that kind of freedom movement, do you think that social media is a huge kind of uh, a tool to be used against those re regimes? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think it's not even just the future, it's the present. I mean, it's like what we're seeing now is, is young people 
like kind of on the front lines of these fights for freedom, for democracy. We're seeing young women leading revolutions in their country. It's, I mean, that that is like, that's amazing. Uh, I don't want to say that's unprecedented, uh, but it's amazing. It's incredible. Um, and I, I love especially that Iran is a, a women-led revolution. Fantastic. Cool. And you've also yeah. very kindly sent me some interviews from uh, Iranian women um, who have been able to fight against these oppressive regimes. So let's take a look. I got arrested by the Moradi police three times when I was living in Iran. In some cases, you might even get accidentally murdered because you're not wearing a hijab. Every time you experience severe humiliation and degradation and you feel like you have no one to 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 help you to support you at the entrance to every single university there's morality police they check your hijab before entering the university if it's not appropriate enough at best case they will not let you in at worst case they can arrest you take you to custody and all of that terrorist and illegitimate Islamic regime in Iran gives them the right to walk up to any person they see who they feel isn't wearing proper hijab and tell them to wear the hijab, arrest them, beat them, murder them, um, you name it. It gives them the authority to drag innocent people away just because they're not wearing proper hijab. I was taken by the morality police the Ershad, how we call them, because my pants weren't wide enough. They were tight, so you could see my ankle. And they take you for the weirdest reasons, okay? They, they, your nail color, your um, hijab, your clothing, anything. If they just feel like taking you, they will take you, and there is no one who can stop them. Some of you have been asking me what is the easiest way to get sentenced to more than 10 years of prison in Iran. Let me show you. Step one, be a woman. Step two, go walk in the streets and show your hair. Once we uh, sit in a central park of the city to drink coffee with our friends, our university friends, uh, there were two girls with us. And then uh, an officer uh, came to us and asked, what is your relationship with these girls? You cannot, <laughs> you cannot have a relationship with opposite gender <laughs> in the public uh, areas and then they ask girls to go to education center to uh, teach them some Islamic values. The first time I was captured with the morality police in Iran, I was 20 years old coming back from the university. They pulled me into the van. I asked other people for help and nobody helped me because they were so afraid of them. And uh, when we were around 15 people, they uh, took us uh, to a police station and uh, they made us to have uh, photographs uh, with our uh, names on a board like real criminals 
and uh, it was very bad feeling. Uh, a lot of girls were crying there. Um, so what kind of freedoms are taken away uh, from women across the globe? Yeah, so we've been speaking about Iran and Afghanistan. Um, we spoke about the US, about our constitutional right, you know, to get an abortion. Um, I think that what's what's um, worry, worrying is that there are so many countries that are not on the global radar when it comes to uh, how they treat women and girls. And I think Qatar is a good example of that because they really like until the, until they recently made international headlines for hosting the World Cup, people weren't really talking about just how abusive their laws are towards women. Um, and it wasn't until they like had all of this spotlight and attention on them that people started to talk about that. Um, and I think that there's, yeah, there's a lot of um, systems in place in countries uh, across the across the Middle East, but 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 in the Gulf states, particularly that that really hinder women's freedom. I think that's incredible. Um, I think it's, it's interesting how um, different those levels of authority of, or sort of authoritarianism and autocracy actually uh, impact women themselves as well. Um, I mean, we've seen across the world where where we see these kind of regimes actually becoming more authoritarian. One of the yeah. biggest like telltale signs is when women's rights are being rolled back. So when their reproductive rights are being rolled back, their rights to be educated, uh, their freedom of movement, when women have, um, when those kind of laws become uh, implemented to hurt women, that's kind of a good telltale sign for an authoritarian regime in the first place. Um, do you know why women are targeted by these regimes? Yeah. Well, I mean, as I said before, I don't think it's a coincidence that women's rights are rolling back at the same time. You know, authoritarianism, authoritarianism is coming up um, and the patriarchy yeah, has essentially upheld the world since the beginning of time. And one of the core tenets of feminism is that women should have freedom to control our bodies and our lives. Right. That is a direct threat to the policies and ideologies um, of authoritarian regimes and dictators um, who want to uphold these extremely patriarchal values in their societies. Um, so authoritarianism, authoritarianism and patriarchy go hand in hand um, and both are in direct conflict with uh, feminism, with educating women and girls, uh, with exposing them to knowledge and autonomy and their rights. Um, again, like when women know our rights, we're a lot less likely to submit to the patriarchy. That's incredible. I think that's very true. And that's why education is so important. Um, what do you think about the impact that economic freedom has on women? Uh, there is obviously a difference between um, feminism that argues for a more socialist economy, that argues that socialist economies um, are what's required to, uh, to uh, liberate women, so to speak. Why do you think that that's not the case? So economic freedom is uh, essentially about, you know, access to capital and and the right to own property, the right to start a bank account. Um, and there's still many legal barriers and restrictions to women globally um, in terms of accessing money. Uh, women often have to have a hard time you know, getting a loan unless the co-signer is a male, which makes it difficult for them to start a small business. Um, organ there are organizations uh, like BRAC and Silatech 
um, just to name a couple that are, you know, actively trying to get young people and young women access to loans in places where it's often difficult for women to, to do that. Um, but it's not only about economic freedom, I think, for women. It's about economic freedom for everyone. And that's like kind of the point that I want to hone in on because it's like economic freedom and, and liberalization is, is critical in building a strong economy. And all of those restrictions that we just talked about limit the growth of a country and a society. They limit the ability to buy and sell goods and services. Um, and you know, that which, which is crucial in, in any thriving economy. And women have a big influence on the economy. So if at least half of a population are denied or restricted by laws that prohibit prohibit them from accessing money and starting businesses um, or contributing to the workforce, then a country's GDP will suffer inevitably. And its people, all of its people will suffer from that. So it's not like, again, like taking it even bigger, like it's not even just about women's access to to economic freedom it's literally it's everybody's economic freedom when women are prohibited everyone is prohibited (laughs) can you tell me a little bit about why you think that economic freedom is really important for for women's liberation yeah so economic freedom is at its core about having access to capital about the right to own your own property the right to start a bank account in your name uh, and, you know, there are still a lot of legal restrictions around the world um, that restrict women from from doing those things. Uh, women often have a hard time getting loans, which means that they can't start their own business without a man co-signing off on it. Um, but it's it's really about economic freedom, not just for women, but for everyone in a society, because economic freedom is critical in building a strong economy. So all of those restrictions that I just mentioned, they limit the growth of a society and ultimately of a country. And they limit, I mean, women have a huge influence on any uh, economy of a country. And so if at least half the population is denied or restricted by laws that prohibit them from accessing money or joining the workforce or starting their own businesses or being entrepreneurial, then a country's GDP will inevitably suffer. And that means that everybody will suffer. So again, it's about more than just economic freedom for women. It's about economic, it's about ensuring economic freedom for women so that everybody in a, in a society or a country benefits. That's absolutely fantastic. And why do you think you came to that conclusion rather than the conclusion that many kind of left-wing definitions of feminism come to, which is that uh, more government is a solution to 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 uh, uh, gender equality? That more government that is... more government, sort of a socialist economy, is 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 the solution. So why is it you didn't you didn't come to that conclusion? I don't know why I didn't come to. <laughs> because <laughs> you've got a brain <laughs> yeah i mean i i just know that like women like it's just been proven over and over and over again that when women contribute to a country's workforce when they have the same opportunities as men do uh they will they will make a country better like the a country will will thrive if women are a part of the economy um 
that's been literally proven over and over again. So that, and, and so everybody benefits, <laughs> it's not just about women, but yeah. Amazing. That's really interesting. And if I mean, obviously the work that you do is absolutely incredible and it um, really does show the sort of the impact that these stories can really have. How can uh, the people watching get involved and actually become uh, sort of aware and be able to keep up the date to, with, with, you know, with the work that you do, but also to the, with the work with more to her story? Yeah, so you can follow on Instagram, uh, more to her story official. That's where you post the most of the videos. Also, you can go to moretoherstory.org. Um, there's a section where you can read actual stories uh, and essays from young women around the world and also see their video diaries all in one place um, and donate if you feel led to. <laughs> that is amazing. Thank you so much, Sarah, for joining me today. Uh, that was absolutely incredible. I really enjoyed that conversation. I think it really does show the uh, sort of impact that economic liberalization and um, sort of the impact that those authoritarian regimes can have on women and why it's important that we use our voices to fight against that. So thank you so, so much for joining me, Sarah. And thank, thank you. you to all of you for watching. If you enjoyed that video, then uh, please do hit the subscribe button and comment below because we'll be reading them and hearing about what your thoughts are. Thank you.